You are listening to a Raw Collective podcast. Alrighty, this episode is brought to you by Bliss Probiotics and Mitchell's Nutrition, two really awesome companies making really cool products that I use, and I'm stoked they have jumped on board to support the podcast. First up, let's chat about Bliss Probiotics. If you want to support your natural immunity, then this is a really cool way to do it. These guys make a lozenge for your mouth that is probiotic, and it supports your microbiome in your mouth and throat, which is it's pretty unique in the microbiome kind of sphere. These guys are leading the charge globally in this sort of thing. It's all based on science. The products are made in Dunedin, and uh, it's a really good way to support your immunity. So if you're interested to learn more, check out the show notes. Secondly, you may have noticed that I'm quite into my bone broth protein powder from Mitchell's. I've posted about it numerous times on Instagram. I love it a lot. And uh, I'm really glad that these guys have jumped on board to support the podcast. I really like promoting them. They are a really cool company based in Tauranga. And they make an amazing bone broth protein powder. It's um, a very high quality protein powder. Tastes absolutely delicious. It's certainly worth checking out. So if you're interested, hit the show notes for more information about Mitchell's. All right, this was an awesome podcast today uh, with uh, Dr. Eric Helms, who's a, a sports scientist and an absolute guru when it comes to anything related to muscle hypertrophy or building muscle. He's a bit of a big name in the uh, in bodybuilding circles, and we're very lucky to have him being based here in New Zealand. So today we chatted all about building muscle exercises. We go into specifics about all of this sort of stuff. We talk a lot about nutrition, talk about recovery, we talk about hormones, and we also just talk about the industry of bodybuilding. And um, And I asked him all sorts of questions about steroid use and different things like that, because I've always, always been interested in this sort of stuff. So it's a, a fascinating chat. It's a good eye-opener into the industry. And um, yeah, I think you're going to like it. So let's get into it. Okay, so Eric, first question I want to ask you. Mm. What is the weirdest or most interesting thing that you've ever done for your health or performance? Well, honestly, I think bodybuilding itself is is really weird, you know, as a sport, you know. When I first got into lifting, I knew that I was very passionate about it, aka I was obsessed. It probably wasn't healthy, but we'll get to that. And, you know, once you get to be, not that everyone gets to be this, but in my small little gym where I was training, I was like one of the stronger guys. Like I was one of the guys, you know, you ask for advice, you give them some shitty bro science advice because it's, you know, 2005 and you're 22. And then I was like, I want to take this next step further. And at the time there was no CrossFit. The options were pretty much powerlifting or bodybuilding. And I was like, yeah, I want to get into bodybuilding. And then I just remember my very first season shaving parts of my body that I never thought about the hair there. Yeah. Uh, basically, when you're when you're not on stage, it looks like you're doing blackface. And you're like, is this okay? You know, yeah. like putting on dream tan. <laughs> so just the entire competitive experience where you're having someone else put tanner on you and then you're putting tanner on yourself while you're mostly naked and you just starved yourself. I would say that's probably still the weirdest thing I've ever done is just compete in bodybuilding. So, yeah. Yeah, I bet it is. It's kind of strange when you break it down into those parts of it, isn't it? Yeah. Just with the tan thing, is that because it makes your muscles more defined? 
Well, it really comes down to a PM would have fine, sorry. Well, you'll probably know this from your your time on on TV. Like the first time I went to a live play, and when you get the chance if you hang out afterwards with these amateur actors and you shake their hand afterwards, you, you walk up to me like, oh wow, this is really thick stage makeup. It looks normal on stage when there's this harsh overhead bright lights, but when you walk up to them, they're just sitting there afterwards, like, whoa, that's very obvious. So if you were to get on stage is a white guy especially, and you don't have any color, the bright lights from being on stage, they just make you look like some kind of alien being who's just, you know, walking down a dark hallway just emanating light. There's nothing to see except this blinding light. So it is really to just make sure that with the the lighting that is provided at the shows that you have an appropriate level of not contrast so that you have you can actually see things. It's funny because when you're in like a hotel room looking in the mirror, you look a little bit less defined, depending on how dark the color is. Mm. But on stage, you look better. So it is because of the the very, very bright lights. Are you still competing? Yeah, yeah. I did my last season in 2019, and I'm planning on competing next year when I turn 40. Awesome. How much time do you need to sort of give yourself to build up to a competition? Yeah, so getting into the kind of shape you need to be competitive in the actual bodybuilding division on the the natural side where I compete. It depends on the individual. Some people just are, you know, very good at losing body fat. Other people have a little more resistance to it physiologically. I normally take about six months to get into like really, really pristine shape. Uh, we're talking, you know, no visible fat anywhere. Yeah, I'm typically getting into stage condition right around that five or six month mark when I start dieting. Right. And so you're talking about the six months leading into it. Is that just the cutting phase? Yes. All right. So you've already built all the muscle before that. Well, I mean, you build the muscle in the 10, 15 years of training beforehand. Yep. I think that's a, that's a common like misconception when people think about bodybuilding is that there is a very distinct, like, oh, I'm going to go to a bodybuilding season, so I'm going to put on muscle and get big into the show. But the reality is that it takes, you know, decades to build the kind of muscle to be a competitive bodybuilder. For most people, some people are just, you know, they picked up weights. Oh, look, I'm huge. But <laughs> it wasn't me. Um, no, no me. Yeah, still not there. But yeah, it can take decades to get into the kind of muscularity the average person would need to look right on stage, in my opinion. And then it can take, in most cases, you know, months to get into shape. And there are some people who like they were athletes for a long time or maybe they do a little powerlifting or a little Olympic weightlifting or, you know, strongman and they just kind of like take a break to do bodybuilding. And, you know, they do a lot more machine work. They don't do deadlifts for a bit and they diet. And that's that looks a little different. So depending on, you know, who you're aware of in the space. But people who are like consummate career-based competitive bodybuilders, it's the training doesn't change much whether you're in prep or in the off-season. It's just – you know, do you like to feel terrible while you're training or not, which is the difference between contest prep and off-season. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. Okay, well, yeah, we'll we'll get into all this. You're a coach. Who, who do you coach? Yeah, so I started as a personal trainer way back in 2005, just working with general population. But my goal, because of my interest in weight training myself, was always to eventually get the opportunity to work with strength athletes and bodybuilders. So 3D Muscle Journey is the company that I work with, that I founded along with my colleagues. Around 2014, 2015, I transitioned away from being a full-time coach for drug-free strength athletes and bodybuilders, and I became the like team science officer, basically. I call myself the chief science officer because that sounds like Star Trek, which is awesome. It sounds great. Exactly, right? But yeah, so Alberto Nunez 
Brad Loomis, Jeff Alberts, and also our new new addition, uh, Brian Miner. They're our full-time coaches, and it's my job to make sure that they have the best information available to them as it comes out in the scientific literature, all the tools at their disposal, you know, help them determine specific things like, hey, Eric, I'm seeing this. Anything that you might be aware of that could explain that or help with that, that type of deal. Not that I don't coach at all, but I have maybe like five athletes right now when I used to have like 40. And what sort of competitions are they competing in? Yeah, so they're most of the time, I would say about roughly half of our athletes are current or future actual physique competitors. So they'll be getting on stage doing all the craziness I talked about when we first started the podcast. And I would say another 25% are strength athletes, mostly powerlifters. So they're doing squat, bench, and deadlift competitively to get a total and mostly competing in the the IPF, which is the International Powerlifting Federation. That's the kind of like the biggest drug-tested powerlifting federation. And then the other quarter are people who are really interested in building strength or muscle, but aren't competing. So they're quote-unquote recreational athletes or, or non-competitive athletes, probably to give them the respect that they deserve for all the hard work they put in. You just talked about the um, the strength athletes there. So they mm. compete in a drug-tested strength competition. So there's there's obviously like your natural bodybuilding and then there's the non- Bodybuilding. And yeah. then there's bodybuilding, right? <laughs> I, I, I want to talk about all this. But with the strength side of things, is there mm. a natural strength there is, and then a non-natural strength? So interestingly enough, the biggest bodybuilding federations that most people are aware of, like historically, like Arnold Schwarzenegger competing at the IFBB Mr. Olympia, for example, since the 70s, that's where bodybuilding started. And there wasn't really a movement to create, quote unquote, natural bodybuilding until like the late 60s, early 70s, which unsurprisingly is right around the time when anabolic steroids became prevalent in the, uh, the lifting scene in general, but also in bodybuilding. And if we go back in time, I'm a little bit of an amateur historian when it comes to strength, sport, and physical culture. The interest in bodybuilding very much aligned with health, and it was a little more holistic. Most competitive bodybuilders also sometimes competed in Olympic weightlifting. This was before powerlifting even existed. You know, for example, the late, great Tommy Kono, one of the best American weightlifters of all time, he was actually a Mr. Universe at one time. Uh, John Grimmick, I think the second Mr. America, if I recall correctly, he went to the Olympics in 1936 and competed in Olympic weightlifting. So the Iron Game was kind of this one thing, and it's been more of a modern evolution from the 60s onward where you see the splintering into like these different factions, if you will, or disciplines, yeah. probably a more nice way to put it. So Joe and Ben Weider came around in the... 50s and 60s, and they started saying, hey, you know, all these competitions, which at the time were combined, you would do a bodybuilding competition the day after a weightlifting competition. Or like in the Mr. America, you would get athletic points for how well you did at senior nationals like the day before. Mm. So it's this combined physique strength competition. I tell you what, it would blow up on social media today, but people don't know this because there weren't even like, you know, cameras back then. No. I mean, there were, but but it, there was very few like opportunities to document this in a visual way, which is, you know, why bodybuilding really gets eyes on it. So anyway, fast forward to today, you know, Joe Weider says, look, we want bodybuilding just to be bodybuilding. We don't have to do a clean and jerk beforehand. And then the guys who are loving doing the squat bench and deadlift, the quote unquote odd lifts in the 50s and the 60s, they're like, hey, can we do just that? We want to call that powerlifting right? Then there's this revival of old school strongman. And hey, let's do strongman competitions, which you see today, which is actually a throwback to like the 1890s and the early 1900s and people lifting weird objects. So today we have this uh, kind of cornucopia of different strength sports and physique sports. And because of that, and because of some of the reasons behind it, some people were like, well, no, I want to keep that health focus. So we're going to do natural bodybuilding, which started uh, Chester Yorton, Chet Yorton, uh, one of the great 60s uh, bodybuilders. 
once he became aware that a lot of his professional colleagues were were using Dianabol and things like that, he was like, that's not why I bodybuild. I want to keep this, this element of health. So he started promoting uh, the Orton Cup and one of the first natural bodybuilding organizations that started in the late 70s and really blossomed in the 90s and 80s. Uh, now there's the WNBF, World Natural Bodybuilding Federation. That's probably the biggest one, but there's worldwide probably over 100 natural bodybuilding organizations. It's very splintered. The WNBF is actually doing its first show in Christchurch here in New Zealand, first time in New Zealand coming up in October. And they actually do polygraph testing for everyone to get on stage to be 10 years drug-free. And then if you win uh, professional status or if you compete as a pro, then you also do urine testing afterwards. So they're relatively serious about drug testing. It's imperfect, as all drug testing is, but it at least signals to the athletes like, you know, we're trying to create a level playing field. And the parallels to that do exist in other strength sport. So powerlifting, especially as a non-Olympic sport, it doesn't necessarily have drug testing built in. So there are tons of untested powerlifting organizations out there that you can compete in if you're comfortable with your competitors potentially using anabolics or if you want to. Uh, and then there's also, like I mentioned earlier, the IPF, which is the largest international powerlifting federation, and it has various regional affiliates. So the NZPF here in New Zealand, that is the uh, tested powerlifting federation. The sports which don't have as much delineation between uh, enhanced or not are the ones that are either a part of an Olympic sport. So like weightlifting, mm. there's only really one federation. That is the IWF, the International Weightlifting Federation, that, that feeds into the Olympics because it's an Olympic sport. So once something gets a, a recognized in the Olympics, then WADA gets involved and you know you have to create this kind of backyard federation if you want to have an untested Olympic weightlifting thing. Right. So this probably exists somewhere, but because it's a publicly seen Olympic sport, it is pretty much all tested in, in weightlifting. And then you just have discrepancies between which countries have better testing, which ones are trying to get around it, which ones might actually have institutionalized doping. If anyone's seen like the documentary Icarus, for yeah, example. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was thinking of when you were saying that. That's amazing. Yeah. Incredible what they did over there. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. We'll put that in the show notes for anyone who wants to see that. It's um, basically the whole Russian doping scandal leading into the Olympics a few years ago. You mentioned something about the polygraph tests and the mm. competition in Christchurch. Is that because they basically are testing whether or not they have done anabolic steroids a long time ago, in which case urine tests and, and, and blood tests and stuff can't test for steroids Exactly. Right. So yeah, the depending on the natural organization, they have a rule of being like five, seven, or ten years drug free. I think there's even some in the UK that are supposed to be lifetime. Surely it would have to be lifetime. I mean, you could build muscle and then hold on to it for sort of like ten or fifteen years, don't you think? Or that is something that certainly seems to be the case anecdotally. But there's interesting physiology there that we're still uncovering. Mm. There's using anabolics, and then there's using anabolics, right? There's Mr. Olympia-level drug use that has gone on for 10 years. And even when you're on when you're off cycle, it's like basically high-level TRT. And then when What's you're— What's TRT? So testosterone replacement therapy. Right, okay. So back in the 70s or 80s and even into the 90s, there were people would cycle off almost completely off the drugs for health reasons. And because the demands of the sport weren't to be quite as big— but if you've looked at stage weights from Lee Haney to Dorian Yates to Ronnie Coleman, they have gone steadily up. Those guys were all about the same height, and they went from being you know, 240 to 250 to 260 to 270 to almost 300 pounds on stage. These are guys who wow. are 5'10", 5'11", you know, and for, for the people who don't know pounds, like they're 130 kilos on stage at the biggest, under six feet tall. So you know, we're talking under 180 centimeters and – 
you're, you know, what, class three obesity, except you're 5% body fat. So figure that out, right? Wow. So the demands in the bodybuilding division specifically have gotten so high that people are basically on year round and have been for years at the highest level. And I think that is very different than, yeah, when I was 20, you know, I, I did a cycle of Winstrol, you know, like, or hey, back when pro hormones, I could buy them on bodybuilding.com you know, I got some, uh, some andro. There's a huge degradation there, or, or I should say delineation there. And there's a broad spectrum of what is enhanced, if you will. So every organization has a banned substances list and then a time drug free. And when something comes out that is commercially available to supplement store that actually is a hormonal product, they often will say, hey, here's the grace period. And then from this date on, you need to at least be two years there, but for everything else it needs to be 10 years. So mm. it's a, it's like, it's a complicated test. Yeah. It sounds it. Yeah. And that's why there's that time drug free. And I will say that, so there's some interesting effects of muscle retention. We do have what's called quote unquote muscle memory. Uh, and we're still uncovering the mechanisms of how that works. It's a combination between, you know, if you were to train, take a bunch of time off and come back to training, we have observed that you'll gain that muscle back. Depends on how long it's been, though. And you'll gain that muscle back faster than you first built it? Correct. And that depends right. on how long did you train before? What level of muscularity did you build? How long did you take that time off? And there's a number of different physiological mechanisms which allow us to do that. So we used to just think it was the neuromuscular adaptations. You know, you've got these motor patterns of I know how to squat, deadlift, and bench. I haven't done it in six months, but I don't have to go through that newbie phase where I'm just kind of figuring out the movement and I can get right into effective training and I rebuild my muscle. That's probably part of it, but now we're also understanding that through what's called myonuclear domain theory, which sounds super complicated, but uh, unlike most cells, uh, muscle cells have multiple nuclei. So they don't just have one nucleus. And while they do shrink, they maintain some of those extra nuclei. And each one of those nuclei, uh, quote unquote, governs a certain domain. Meaning that when we first watch a muscle hypertrophy or get bigger, first it starts to grow and then it starts to plateau until it adds more nuclei that can govern more space. And then it can grow some more. So it gets more than two. Uh, oh, it gets way more than two. It gets, right. it's, it's multinucleated. If you were to look at a, like a muscle fiber, it's got nuclei all over it. Okay. And if you look at what happens when you atrophy, a trained individual, the muscle will atrophy, but they maintain those nuclei for the most part. Not always. There's discrepancies between animal studies. There's discrepancies between human studies. But that's one of the potential mechanisms by which we think, okay, well, if you've built a bunch of muscle, you've built a bunch of additional nuclei, and now you can govern more. You can get back up to that, that, mm. that prior state. But we also have to consider some other things. If you were on anabolics for 10 years and you come off, there might be permanent effects on your own natural testosterone levels, and that has been observed. It's very common for, say, retired IFBB pros who used to be, you know, like I said, you know, 300 pounds on stage or 250 pounds on stage when they otherwise would have been 170. They have to stay on TRT, like I mentioned earlier, just to have normal testosterone production levels. And that's so they are getting exogenous testosterone, so they're taking testosterone from an outside source, so then what, their body just stops producing as much? Yeah, that can happen. It's very common. Not always, but it is a very 
common occurrence with high-level and persistent drug use, hormone use specifically, uh, that your natural hormone production won't be the same afterwards. And it depends on individual factors, how long you did it, whether you did what's called post-cycle therapy, which is to try to you know keep your own endogenous production going afterwards. And you can't use TRT in a natural bodybuilding competition. So I actually do know some people who got to the national level and even got a pro card in the IFBB took years off drugs, decided they didn't want to do that anymore, and then 10 years later came and competed as a natural, and they didn't have a competitive advantage that anyone could see. Mm-hmm. Perhaps if you had you know, their alternate reality twin and you compared them, sure. But it's more complex than we think in the myonuclear domain theory interaction with anabolic steroid use and how quickly you lose it and what comes back later. It's not as clear-cut as people on like the YouTube comments want to think it is. Mm. And it's very different, like I said, if you did, you know, a six-week cycle of Andro and 10 years ago versus you had an IFBB Pro card 10 years ago. Essentially, you need to draw some line in the sand. And the only way to have any ability to kind of validate that is through the polygraph test. It's amazing. It yeah. sounds funny that that's used. It's a whole world. Yeah, yeah. And people should know, like, the polygraph test is not admissible in court for a reason. It's not a foolproof test. But I think when you look at some of the studies, qualitative interviews of people who dope in sport, they're not doing it because they can, because people are inherently shitty and just want to win no matter what. They're doing it because they have a perception that everyone else is doing it. Mm. So it has much more to do with the sporting culture. So I've had the unique opportunity to work in high-performance sport in New Zealand and along some of the colleagues in HPSMZ. I've had the opportunity to do that in the States. I've had the opportunity to talk to people from all over the world. I've had the opportunity to be outside of the Olympic or professional sport realm and this little backyard stuff we do called bodybuilding and powerlifting. I have friends on the enhanced side of the sport at the highest level, and I have friends at the highest level, and I you know, coach at the highest level in natural bodybuilding. And the motivations are and the perceptions are very different case by case. There are some countries who they believe all the other countries are cheating and that they have to do that to keep up. That's, you know, from speaking to some of my colleagues who used to live in Russia, that is the mindset over there and in some Mm. of the Eastern European countries. Everyone's doing this, so it's okay. It's not really cheating. We just have to not get caught. And that's a very different mindset when you sit down and you talk to athletes who are in countries where the internal testing is a lot more consistent, like the US, the UK, Australia, New Zealand. You typically don't see institutionalized cheating. You typically see individuals who justify it and they try to get away with it. I listen to some of the interviews uh, with Lance Armstrong and those guys. Cycling developed a culture where they believed everyone at the highest level was doping. And it did become true after a while, mm. but it's kind of the self-fulfilling prophecy. And there was an interesting Australian study that came out that looked at some different organizations and who was cheating where and why, just qualitative interviews with athletes. And there was a bodybuilder who had a much higher prevalence of belief that everyone else was cheating, and that's how they justified it for themselves. And they were competing in an organization that, throwing no shade here, and I'm not going to say what the organization was, but like I said, there's a lot of different natural organizations. Some are much more committed to it actually being drug-free, and others are just kind of putting it on there, but they don't want to pay for the drug testing or they don't want to deal with the logistics. Mm. But most organizations are not doing polygraph testing and urinalysis testing for everyone and being very consistent with it. They'll just throw random urinalysis in there. And maybe they go a whole year and they didn't drug test, you know? So there are organizations like that. I wouldn't say that's actually most. That's the minority where they get a culture, understandably, of, yeah, we're quote-unquote natural. And that's a very different culture than you'll see in, like, the WNBF or the INBF. And cheating is really rare there. Mm. Uh, Even though you could do things to work around it, there's also very little reward. 
you know, you get a plastic trophy. It costs more to fly to a show, enter, and, you know, buy drugs and then pay for your drug test than you'll ever win. Like if you won every pro natural bodybuilding show in the WNBF in a year, you'd make like 10 grand. You know, it's, it's, wow. yeah. And most people don't know who natural bodybuilders are. So, yeah, that's what I wanted to ask you. Yeah. Can you can you look at pretty much anyone and tell if they're natural or not? Can you scroll through your Instagram feed and be like, mm, natural? Nah, he's taking anabolic steroids. Oh man, there's a ton of guys who will tell you they can do that, mm. but they're 100% full of shit. Yeah. Yeah. So you can tell when someone is on a lot of gear because like no one is going to be 5, 10, 300 pounds on stage. But outside of just being gigantic, and I mean like really big, because some people are naturally quite big, you can't tell, mm-hmm. you know. And there are people who will swear up and down, oh, you look at their delts or their traps, or they say something about androgen receptor density or the quality of the muscle. But I mean, muscle grows in response to, like it's just muscle, right? You know, yeah. we're just meat on a skeleton. Yeah, because what exactly, yeah. I mean, I don't want to I don't want to talk too much about, uh, we're sort of uh, hijacking this into a, a full-on um, drug chat. <laughs> <Yeah>. but, um, <laughs> but, but what exactly is happening when someone takes anabolic steroids? Is it help, yeah. How is it helping them like lift more or like recover faster? What's happening? Yeah, so anabolic steroids are synthetic forms of testosterone and they ramp up protein synthesis, which just means the creation of contractile tissues. But the proteins themselves are the same proteins you've got from your endogenous hormones or, you know, like women still build muscle with far less testosterone than us as well. Like the actual output, it's just more muscle from higher protein synthesis outpacing other things. And, you know, protein synthesis is also part of the uh, procedures of how our body repairs muscle damage. So the anecdotal reports of how I can recover better when I'm on anabolics, that, that probably might be part of it as well. Maybe you can incur more muscle damage and recover from it and therefore be able to do more. Uh, you might be able to benefit from a higher overall training stress. That's certainly something you hear athletes talk about. Mm. But yeah, when it really just comes down to it, it's basically higher levels of testosterone driving higher levels of protein synthesis, allowing you to maintain a higher level of muscle mass. So it's nothing magical. That's why I don't you still think have, you still have to do the work and still have to lift the weights. Yeah. And so the reason why you can't identify people is that you don't necessarily know what someone's genetic limits are. And the power of genetics and having elite talent, if you will, far surpasses that of anabolic steroids. This is more true in performance sport than it is just building a lot of muscle because that's a physiological effect, not necessarily like, you know, can I pitch a ball 100 miles per hour in baseball or something like that. But there are definitely people who you could give them all the drugs in the world and they still wouldn't beat a natural champion who just has elite genetics. Mm. And that's a hard pill for a lot of people to swallow when they believe in that kind of just, you know, pull myself up by the bootstraps mentality. But it's 100% true. And so, yeah, because that's, that's an interesting point. Because I think you see a lot of people, I'm going to go back to Instagram and say, you see people on Instagram and you're like, man, that guy's jacked. Or like, hey, that that woman is, um, she's an incredible um, mm. shape. You know, she's got such a great physique. And you think, man, like, why can't I be like that? What's going on? Are these people with these amazing physiques, are they in like the top 1% of the genetic pool that can actually achieve that sort of thing? Mm. That's why Instagram's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> because it selects for the things that are going to create likes and clicks. And so you're getting a combination of people who are natural and enhanced. There's plenty of enhanced influencers. I and mean, don't get me wrong. And I'm not claiming that, oh, yeah, a lot of people are drug-free that you don't know. But a lot of people are drug-free that you don't know. And there's a lot of people if you go to your local gym, who look natural, who are on drugs because mm. they are trying to combat the fact that they don't have great genetics or they don't know what they're doing, what they're lifting, or they're not consistent and they're trying to make up for that with anabolics. There's a few organizations that they post up like the wall of shame, people who got caught using drugs. And it's not the champions all the time. It's like, oh, he placed ninth 
And it's like, right. you know, like that's embarrassing. You yes. know, not, not only are you cheating, but you cheated to place out of the top 10. And mm-hmm. you know they're telling themselves, well, everyone's doing it, you know. But anyway, on Instagram and on social media, you have to think of how many millions of users there are and then what is going to select for getting the most clicks. So if you're someone, your typical kind of, you know, fitness-interested person on Instagram who follows a lot of people with amazing physiques and you take all their advice, you're essentially looking at the genetic elite, a large proportion of who are on anabolics that you probably are not, and them just giving you anecdotal advice, hey, this worked for me. And you might have someone... If you think about it like this, the average person thinks, I find someone successful and then I copy what they do and I'll have similar results. But if we just like, let's just play the numbers here. Let's say you got someone with a million followers with an amazing physique and they're the one who has a million followers. All their followers have between 100 to 1,000. That means that the program that quote unquote worked for them doesn't work for a million people (laughs) to the same degree. (laughs) So I would say like if you just went by that metric, it might be a pretty shitty program, you know? More realistically, it states that this doing the same thing, they're going to get far more return on that investment than you. So maybe copying them is not the, the bee's knees, if you mm, will. Yeah, and I think it's also, it is really good to just keep in mind that they are the genetic elite. They also you know? know how to use structure. You just turn that sucker up. Yeah, yeah. right. Uh, or you, you actually use Photoshop and you make yourself look different. <laughs> I mean, if you ever hung out with some of the social media influencers, and regrettably I have, like, they don't just take one selfie. They'll, like, take a selfie, look at it. Okay, no, change the lighting a little bit. No, what do you think over here? Like, <laughs> And it's like, oh, my God. Like, it's it's hard not to throw up in your mouth a little bit, at least for me. That sounds very judgmental. And I get that there's, you know, when there's money involved and when there's pride involved and when you're basically going back to being in high school and you're like, oh, this popularity, all this dopamine clicks and likes, it motivates people to do everything they can to try to optimize the way they look on social media. I have been guilty of that in the past as a, sure. you know, as a bit of a social media influencer and I'll be, you know, posting things for this external gratification from people I just yeah. have no idea who they are. Yeah. And um, it's taken a bit of a journey for me to like figure that out and ask my questions, why am I posting this? And like, yeah. you know, what's the reason? To then really come back to it and just be like, I don't need to post stuff for other people to like that I, you know, I don't even know who these people are. Mm. Um, but it's, it takes a bit to work through that because uh, I don't know, I guess we're wired to want people to like us and to yes. um, have that external gratification to make us feel like we're doing the right thing and we're, we're doing, doing well. Absolutely. Mm. I think that the platforms are built that way. They tap into those aspects of, of what is very human. And I've absolutely been there myself. Like I noticed that my followers like doubled during my 2019 contest season because I was posting physique pictures, you know? So that tells me, oh, I get more likes and clicks and I'm trying to do something and they're saying I'm doing well and more people are going, oh, you look sick and that's amazing. I'm not going to lie. I'm like, I don't care. I do this for myself. Like, of course, I like to hear people tell me mm. that, oh, you, that, that's really impressive or a good job or keep it up. And it motivates you to do that more. And it can very easily and unfortunately take something that maybe your motivation to do it originally was something a little more altruistic or a little more something that you were directly connected to. And it can kind of poison the well if you're not careful. Mm. I've also had to do similar thinking about that and remind myself, like, why am I doing this? I'm trying to improve the community and help people. Does this post do that? Or is this me just, you know, feeling better because I'm insecure on a social media platform, which is really just going to lead to more insecurity in the long run. So, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Alrighty, as I mentioned at the start of this podcast, Bliss Probiotics is one of our sponsors for this episode, so I thought I'd just let you know a little bit more about what they do, who they are, and and why I think they're so good. So Bliss Probiotics, they help to support your immune system. They're unlike most probiotics that target the gut. Bliss Probiotics specifically target the mouth and the throat, which is, you know, that's essentially, it's the gateway to your body. 
So they stop the bad bacteria up in the mouth and throat before it gets a chance to get inside you and start making you sick. Because there are so many things that make you sick these days. And there's so many illnesses, there's so many viruses. It's been a long winter. And so I'm always interested to find different ways in which I can help keep myself and my family well. And Bliss Probiotics is one of the things that we do. We take lozenges every day as a preventative measure to support our immunity, keep ourselves healthy. Because at the end of the day, who wants to be sick? I know I don't want to be sick and I don't want a sick family. I don't want sick kids. We just take, uh, take one lozenge a day. They taste delicious. My son loves them. He's always asking for his lozenge in the morning. So take Bliss Probiotics to increase your good bacteria in your mouth and your throat, maintain good health and protect your family against chills and colds. I also love that they're backed by science and made locally in Dunedin. So if you're interested to learn more, check out the show notes for a direct link to their website and you can have a look for yourself and learn more and see how you can get yourself some if you're interested. And now back to the chat. Okay, now I want to talk about some training stuff. Cool. So, you know, for one of your athletes, say, all of your athletes, you want to optimize a bunch of different aspects of their lifestyle, right? So you probably want to optimize their exercise or their training, their nutrition, their recovery, and then maybe also their hormones. I'm thinking like naturally, you probably want to do some things with that in mind. Maybe. Yeah, I'd say primarily the the first three. We started this whole chat with a big discussion of drugs, so it Mm. makes sense that because the kind of the bodybuilding industry – came out of this very drug-influenced culture. We focus a lot on hormones, but I think we should probably focus less on hormones. Hormones, I like to describe them to people as that's the way things that are happening rather than something that you need to actively manipulate. So, like, it's, it's happening already. Yeah. Like, if you think of what are hormones, they are chemical messengers in the body. And sometimes we kind of get a little twisted. We get focused on the mechanism rather than the thing that causes the mechanism to do what's happening. Like, oh, testosterone improves protein synthesis, so I need to try to optimize my endogenous testosterone. Well, training also improves, you know, protein synthesis. Eating protein does. And there's a huge difference between trying to supplement with zinc and magnesium and, you know, uh, vitamin D and trying to take all these natural supplements and then going, all right, I've increased my testosterone from 500 to 530. That's got to be good, right? That's a lot different than the guy who's at 530 and now he's taking two grams of anabolic steroids. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, it is literally a 10 to 20 to even 50-fold difference. And what you will get out of improving your endogenous testosterone production by 10% will be literally nothing as far as muscle gain. Wow. In normal ranges, there are very small differences. It's not one of the primary Mm. uh, determinants of muscle size. I mean, there's, like I always tell people, like, there's some pretty jacked natural women, you know? Another way to look at it is, you know, sometimes people will focus on, like, insulin. Like, oh, insulin is what stores fat, so therefore I need to manipulate insulin. But insulin goes up in response to eating energy, right? And we have other ways to store fat besides insulin, which is why if you eat like a high-fat, low-carb diet, but you're in a calorie surplus, you can still gain weight and gain body fat. So a lot of the times focusing on the applied principles of progressive overload, doing a sufficient amount of work, recovery, basically the first three things you said, focusing on nutrition, training, and recovery, the hormones are then going to follow those manipulations you've made with those to do what's appropriate, so long as you're not you know, having a clinical condition or something like that. Mm. And also more importantly, most of the people who's probably listening to this podcast, they're not endocrinologists. You know, rest in peace to Charles Poliquin, who people may or may not be familiar with it, but he used to promote the idea that you could measure skin folds and that would tell you indications about hormones and then you give people supplements. And 
you know, he's talking to like 18, 19-year-old trainers. And I'm like, okay, first off, the only way to measure hormones is, believe it or not, measuring hormones, not, you know, pinching skin. <laughs> yeah. So you're you're diagnosing a hormonal status. Okay, sweet. So now you stepped on the scope of practice of doctors. Wonderful. And then you're going to prescribe them supplements. Sweet. Now you stepped on the scope of practice of a dietitian. And again, you're an 18-year-old with a personal training certification. Maybe. So like that is a very common thing in the fitness industry. But most of the time, it is just the Dunning-Kruger effect at play where people learn a little bit of something and they think they're an expert when in reality, they've barely scratched the surface and they're probably doing more harm than good. Uh, and that's me as someone who has 10 years of schooling in this. I don't try to manipulate hormones even though I – I mean, I have a PhD. It's like a fake doctorate. But it's not – I'm not an MD. But yeah, that, that's, that's coming from someone who – understands the physiology, but I absolutely don't have clinical expertise in manipulating it. So it's just about staying in your lane so that not only do you have a, a, an appropriate positive effect on the person, but you don't do harm, you know? Yeah, I be it. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about optimizing the training side of things. Sure. Let's just talk about someone who wants to build muscle for the rest of the foreseeable future. Yeah. Because it sounds like it's more of a continuous building journey rather than like trying to build and then cut or whatever into a certain time frame. So someone who's just trying to build muscle, what do you recommend? What are you doing? Mm. I think the first step is I ask the person, what are their constraints? Because what you want to do, you know, we always focus on being optimal, but in the end, what you're doing is you're optimizing within the constraints of your life, right? So let's say you've got two kids and a full-time job. You've got an hour and a half on Saturday and Sunday, and then on uh, Wednesdays you work from home and you can get out to the gym for an hour. Okay, so we've got four hours-ish to play with. If I give you a five-day-per-week, seven-hour training program, that's going to set you up for failure. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of people do that when they run into some of these templates online or they just download a PDF from somebody. So the first step is to figure out what is the resources I can bring to the table? And then within that, you have to figure out, okay, what's the big picture variables I need to play with? And the big kind of three, if you will, is the volume, the total amount of work you're doing, uh, the intensity or the load and how close to failure you're going with lifting weights, and then the frequency. How often are you training a muscle group if your goal is getting big? Or how often are you training a exercise if your goal is to try to get stronger on that exercise? I often will use an approach where I think about, okay, from all the research I've read and the meta-analyses, like studies of studies of studies, like these big picture looks at all the various studies we have where we've you know, made people lift weights and we saw how quickly they, they grew compared to some other program. All right, where should we start if they don't have a training history with what's a reasonable amount of volume, a reasonable frequency, and then a reasonable you know, load strategy? So if the goal is, is muscle building, I generally start someone, if it's you know, right off the bat, somewhere in like the 8 to 10 sets per muscle group, uh, training each muscle group at least like— This is per week. Per week, yeah, yep. exactly. Training each muscle group roughly about twice a week, maybe a little more if they have more time on their hands. That makes it so you don't have to destroy a single muscle group on a given day and just really, you know, lose quality as you're going through that, that training session. And in terms of the intensity, there's a, a lovely reality that hypertrophy is a relatively forgiving adaptation. You can find people are doing sets of five and people are doing sets of 15 and they're, they both can get pretty big. And that's supported by the research. You know, it's more about the total number of hard sets that you're doing, not necessarily the specific rep range like we used to think, oh, it's got to be 8 to 12 or maybe 6 to 10 or something like that. But so long as you're doing, you know, not really low rep sets, like say under five, 
and you're training sufficiently hard, meaning that you're reasonably close to, to failure, the most you could do for that set, say within you know three or four reps of failure, at least going all the way up close to it. That weight couldn't be too light. So for example, say you were doing a really light weight and you were doing say 60 reps of it, but you were yes. fatiguing at 60, right? That's too many, surely. Absolutely, yeah. There is some data to suggest like once you're getting below like 30% of your one rep max, which is something you could do 30, 40, 50 reps with or yeah. more, that is probably too light. And that's that's a big part of anyone who's trained people or when they first got into the gym. What feels quote-unquote heavy is very subjective. Like if the heaviest thing that you've squatted is your body coming off of a seat, then putting even 20-kilo bar on your back is going to feel really heavy. But you might be able to do 50 reps even though you just started training. Mm. And that's not going to be effective. So you have to recalibrate and learn. And it does take experience to understand what heavy is. So generally, yeah, as far as how high would I go in reps, I generally keep people you know, below 20, 25 reps. If they really like high rep training and the burn, go for it. But too high, yes. There is a point where it's almost more like doing cardio than it is training. And that's not very effective. So anywhere in like say the five to 20 rep range is where I think 90% of your training should happen Mm. for sure. And then the types of exercises that people should be looking to do, like Mm. how should they kind of split it? What do you think is most effective? You know, people talk about different splits. So they'll do sure. legs on one day or they might do chest and back or they might do mm-hmm. chest and biceps. Like, are there any specific regimes that are most effective? Yeah, you know, when I first start people off, you can fit most people into an upper lower split just because it's simple. And they don't need that much work for any given body part yet. And that will often be pretty effective until you get to the point where you are a more or less intermediate or advanced lifter. And you need to think about my individual factors. You know, the difference between an advanced and an intermediate lifter is that you are starting to have to color outside of the lines. Like I'll, I'll use myself as an example. My legs grow very easily. They don't require much volume or work, but my upper body and partially it's because of my bone structure is always a little narrower, a kind of a narrow, small rib cage, not very wide clavicles. So for me to look wide, I have to do a disproportionate amount of delt work and lat work. And I find myself doing like six sets of legs per week, but like 20 sets on the upper body. That's not something I would recommend most people to do because you have to actually determine whether that's you. So before the advanced stage, intermediate stage, most people fit really well into like an upper-lower four-day split if they can or a three-day alternating upper-lower, upper-lower, upper-lower. So one week you're doing two lowers, one upper, the next week the opposite. And then you can just kind of slot in these these exercises. And generally, I'd recommend people focus on some of the like compound cardinal movements. So when I say compound, I mean multiple joints. So like a squat pattern. That could be a leg press. That could be a barbell squat. That could be a hack squat. Something that is a hinge. You know, that could be a deadlift, an RDL. It could be a good morning if you have someone who can teach you how to do that effectively and safely. It could be a back extension on a 45-degree holding a plate. Those two exercises are going to train your glutes, your hamstrings, and your quads pretty effectively. And then as you move into your upper body, it's about pushing and pulling, right? So a horizontal push, like a bench press, or even like a shallow incline or a shallow decline or even a dip, a vertical press, like an overhead press, and then a vertical pull, a pull-up, a lat pull-down, and then a row or a horizontal pull, like a cable row, dumbbell row, barbell row. If you do those, what I call six cardinal movements, you've trained like 90% of your body. And I think that will get the job done for a large part of your career. And of course, you should have variation. You want to enjoy this. If you find certain exercises don't fit with your body, maybe you've got really long femurs and you're 6'2 
and you're like, I'm not going to do a barbell squat. That's fine. You know, try a single leg leg press. Try a Bulgarian split squat. So it will take some experimentation and some individualization. Maybe you have a, an injury history. You know, you've got a knee injury or a back injury. So you have to work around those. Maybe you have to do some movements that are pretty hard even when you use a light load. You have to get creative to adapt it to yourself, but ultimately there are no sacred cows, if you will, for bodybuilding training. So long as you can stimulate the muscle, it'll grow. Mm. Whether you're doing a, a 500 pound squat and you're just a monster or whether you're doing a, you know, like, like sissy squats with just body weight, but you found it's effective enough that you hit failure around 15 reps, you know? So is that what you should be aiming for? You should be aiming for failure? I would say you can train to failure. I, failure is almost kind of like the idiot's guide to training because you know you've trained hard enough mm. if you actually can't do another rep. But at the same time... It's quite hard to train to failure. It is. It's a real mental game. I sometimes train to failure and achieve it. And then sometimes I plan to train to failure and I know I haven't. Yeah. Yeah. Or you think you have and your buddy goes, let's get one more. And you're like, I can't do another one. And he goes, like, let's get one more. And then you get one and you're like... Hmm. Maybe I could. Yeah. <laughs> I'm questioning everything now, you know. You know, when I first started training back in 04, I thought you had to train a failure or it didn't work. And I would train to failure and passed it. My workout partner and I, we would hit failure and then we'd get like two more reps, like forced reps. Yeah. And and I was like, I don't know how, like my buddy's on vacation. How am I going to train? So I came from a perspective of thinking you had to train a failure. And I was always like cripplingly sore. I didn't understand how people could train the same muscle group twice in a week because I was sore for the full seven days. Mm. So there is a point where training to failure can actually impede the amount of volume you can do, uh, make you reduce the load, drop your reps off in a very precipitous, steep way, and it can prevent you from training with an appropriate frequency as well. So if you look at the research on training to failure, it's not consistently showing that training to failure is better when you control other variables like total volume. So I think what you want to do is find kind of the sweet spot where you're not telling yourself you're at failure, but you could do another 10 reps, which is actually quite common. If you just go to the gym and you're just training and you watch just the average person on the lap pull down and you're like, oh, they just warmed up and then they walk away from the machine and they leave the gym and you're like, oh, that wasn't a warm up. Like that's <laughs> you, you quote unquote train there. Yeah. You don't want to do that, obviously. And I would say the average person would benefit from being told they should train to failure because they would get closer to, but not actually to failure. But I think the average hardcore athlete or bodybuilder or very serious trainee sometimes will do better with going, you know what, I want you to leave one or two in the tank because they're they're grinding themselves in the dust and it's actually impeding the amount they could do. So like a general rule of thumb is that when you're doing compound technical, especially barbell-based movements, so your barbell squat, your deadlift, you probably want to leave one to two in the tank. And then when you're doing like machine-based compound movements, like a cable row, like a leg press or a hack squat, you can go a little closer to failure. Maybe by your third set, you're getting close to there, but you should still have a spotter. You know, you don't want to be the guy who gets stuck under the leg press. And then uh, for your isolation movements, yeah, feel free. You can take it to the house. But any muscle that gets trained at a long muscle length, like if you think about a Romanian deadlift or a stiff leg deadlift, why do they always make you so sore, especially if you haven't done them in a while? For one reason, you haven't done them in a while. But also, when the load is furthest from your body, when you're kind of bent over and your upper body is parallel to the floor, that's when the tension is highest and your hamstring is also stretched the most. So when you do like an incline curl or you go heavy dumbbell flies, these are all movements that lend themselves towards creating more soreness and more, more muscle damage. So if you combine that with failure, you can be in a world of like, um, I'm not going to recover for a week, a week and a half. So I think it's important to think about which exercises lend themselves towards going to failure. Like if you want to do a lateral raise, 
you know, go for it. Like mm. you won't even know tomorrow that you went to failure on your set of lateral races with 10 kilos, you know? I find that all the time. I'm like, you know, I can do, I can do curls. Say I'm doing bicep curls and I can, um, and I won't go to failure. Mm-hmm. Next day, sore. My shoulders, I could do flyers all day. Well, I couldn't do them all day, but I could, I could go to failure and then I'd do as, as many sets as I want, go to failure, think I've just absolutely burned them up. Next day, don't feel a thing. Why is that? That's specifically because of the muscle lengths they're getting trained at. So if you think about, now I get to be the science communicator talking about physics, right? Mm. If you think about like lever arms, right? So when you hold your arm out straight to your side and you're holding a dumbbell in it, that's when the load is the furthest distance from the fulcrum. It's the quote-unquote heaviest for your shoulder right here. But that's also when your shoulder muscles, like your, your deltoid, is the shortest. So it's not being stretched. So if you wanted to make yourself sore, and try this next time. Instead of doing a dumbbell lateral raise, set up a cable with the attachment at wrist height. And so reach across your body here so your delt is in a full stretch and the cable is literally just coming out of the cable stack right here and try to do lateral raises there. And it'll be hard immediately and at the stretched point. Mm. And I guarantee you'll be a little sore if it's if you've never done it before. And that's why on bicep curls, when you think about it, especially like an incline curl, you know, when, when the weight is here, the muscle's still at a relatively elongated length, especially if you're on like an incline curl, your arm's back. Now you're actually stretching the bicep and it's hard right off the, right from the word jump. So yeah, that's one of the main reasons why people don't experience much soreness with like their delts or their back as well. If you think about it, you know, when you first lift on like a cable row, it is easiest here and then it gets hard close to you. Yeah. So the tension is highest when your muscle is short. Right? Right. You're a lot weaker here when you're pulling, trying to get the last three inches to your chest than here. So you're hitting failure because you can't get that last little bit. But in that lengthened position, the tension still isn't that high. Mm. So, yeah, it it is sometimes worth considering uh, how can I make it harder at a long muscle length? And we've actually got recent data that's come out in the last couple of years that shows that training at longer muscle lengths causes a little more growth, which is probably why it's generally a good rule to train with a full range of motion Mm. because that means you're including that long muscle uh, length. So with that in mind, are there techniques that you employ to do with timing of the movement? Because you potentially would want to increase the amount of time spent when the muscle is at an elongated position or a shortened Mm. position to then try and fatigue the muscle fibers in there. Yeah, you certainly can. And this is something from, as as a researcher, interesting hypothesis, I want to see more data. As just an athlete or a coach, I understand the the mechanisms at play, like, oh, if I spend more time in a set at elongated position, it might have a greater stimulus. So, for example, if someone is doing, uh, like, dumbbell flies, you know, they're on their back for chest, once you get to, you know, about two-thirds of the way up, it basically feels like there's no tension. Yep. And it's because your arm's in line with gravity. So, personally, when I do dumbbell flies, as an example, I only come up to the point where I feel tension. And I'm spending basically the whole set in this elongated position for my pecs. I would think that'd be a little more effective. You also have to think that that is going to cause a little more fatigue and damage. So you have to kind of balance stimulus and recovery. But yeah, doing long muscle length partials is something. That's like the one kind of partial that makes sense to me. You know, some people will do partials at a short muscle length. That's, I don't think, doing much. Like the old school... Partials being just partial movement. A partial range of motion of the rep. Like, for example, remember 21s back in the day? You do seven reps at the bottom and seven reps in the top, and then you do seven reps through the whole range of motion. Those seven reps at the top right here, you might feel a little more of a pump, but I I really doubt they're doing much. you got the bicep in a shortened position, and you're not using a full range of motion. Mm. So, yeah, as we understand it right now, the primary benefit of using a a quote-unquote full range of motion is that it, it does include 
that length and position. Mm. So there's a big difference between if you were going to do like a leg extension and just kind of come up halfway versus you wouldn't let yourself come down to that bottom position and stay at the top. The latter probably wouldn't be as effective. Yeah, sure. What about, say, you just general training, what is the kind of like tempo that you try and hit mm. with, say, with any type of reps? I'm sure it varies potentially for the different movement, but is there a general one that you try and There achieve? is. You generally don't want to slow down the concentric or the quote-unquote lifting phase because if you think about it, if you've got a given load, and we're just going back to physics here, and if you could move it faster, to move it slower means you're putting less force into the object, right? So you're actually contracting your muscles not quite as hard. It wouldn't matter as much if you're going to failure, but we just discussed that we probably don't want to always go to failure. So as a general rule, you want to have a forceful concentric, a forceful lifting phase. You want to try to move it quickly. And if it moves really fast and wants to jump out of your hand, it's probably too light, right? But on the eccentric, that's the lowering phase. So if, if for, for those listening to this podcast, the concentric is when I'm doing a dumbbell curl and I'm lifting the dumbbell up towards my shoulder. The eccentric is when I'm lowering it back towards the floor. So on the concentric, forceful, not cheating, not, not changing and using momentum, but a controlled, forceful, explosive eccentric, uh, sorry, concentric. But on the eccentric, you want to have some control on the way down. You don't want to let gravity do the work for you. And the reason being is that the eccentric is still an important part of the training. Your muscle is still under tension. It's elongating as it's under tension, and that does contribute to the overall stimulus. It's, it's basically half the stimulus if you think about it. And your ability to have eccentric strength, quote-unquote, to lower something under control is higher than your concentric strength. If I was to tell you, you know, what's the heaviest squat you could do? And you said, uh, 140 kilos. And I said, all right, when do you get stuck on a 140-kilo squat? And you go, oh, about a foot out of the hole, you know, as I'm coming up, I get stuck about midway and I get pinned. What you never see is someone lower the squat and then like just totally lose control. Not never, but with novices, you see that, but with experienced trainers, they can always get into the hole and they don't know they're going to miss and they're trying a new one right max until they're starting the concentric. And that's because we can lower under control much heavier weights than we can actually lift. So you have the ability to control that eccentric a little more because you're so much stronger without it really adding to the fatigue or making it harder. But if you purposely slow down the concentric, on the other hand, you're reducing the amount of force you're putting out. So generally, you want to control the eccentric and an explosive concentric, and that pretty much applies to like everything. Right. And is there any isometric sort of like holding still in the movement at all? That's a good question. And I think... As this research is coming out suggesting that long muscle lengths are a unique opportunity to create more tension on the muscle and enhance growth, there might be something to taking a second and pausing under tension at that long muscle length. So for example, you're doing a squat and you pause in the hole for a one second count. Or if you're doing a calf raise as you lower back down at the position and your, your foot's fully flexed and your toes are nearly touching your ankle, you pause there for a second. I think there could be something to that that will also reduce the contribution of what's called the stretch shortening cycle, which is like the elastic components of muscles and tendon that are helping you explode upwards. Like bounce back. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, when you do, uh, when you when you jump, you know, the first thing you do is you, you kind of do a little bit of a downward counter movement and you can jump higher with a counter movement jump than like a, a pause to squat jump. That's mm. something you, you can readily observe in, in research. You're removing some of that, but you're letting that elastic uh, recoil dissipate when you pause for a second and come back up. So it depends on your goal. You know, if you're training for hypertrophy, I could see a rationale for having like a one-second pause in that lengthened position between the eccentric and concentric. I don't know that you should do it all the time. It certainly couldn't hurt, and it might perhaps 
add some benefit, spending more time in that lengthened position under tension. But if you're training for performance or strength, you want to utilize that. You don't want to be, mm. you want to be good at using that, uh, that component of your muscle that that's a feature, not a bug, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Our mutual friend Cliff Harvey kind of explained. Cliff's a good friend of mine, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah he's yeah. such a he's such Great a good guy. dude. And and um, I had him on the podcast a few weeks ago, and we were chatting about strength training mm-hmm. versus hypertrophy. And he sort of had a good way of thinking about strength training as it's more of a skill that you're yes. you're learning. And I was kind of thinking, yeah, it's more about like trying to get whatever weight it is to move it in the most efficient probably quickest way. Whereas with hypertrophy, you're kind of actually trying to make the movement hard for yourself so that you're then fatiguing the muscle fibers to then make them grow. Absolutely. I think that's a generally useful way of looking at it. I think there's some distinctions in application, like for example, a barbell row or Romanian deadlift or a full squat. I would generally recommend performing those kind of vanilla stock standard as you would because they're technical, multi-joint, like so many muscles are involved in doing that. And they're also higher risk exercises. So you probably just want to do them right, you yeah. know, and uh, make sure you're stable and you're not making it, you know, you don't want a whole lot of fatigue near failure while you're squatting or doing Romanian deadlifts. That's, I would think that might enhance the the potential risk for acute injury. But if you're doing something like a cable curl or a lateral raise, you know, or a fly, like, yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really good philosophy. What about things like uh, like drop sets and supersets? Do mm. you utilize those in a lot of training? I think you can. I see them as optional rather right. than being like advanced or intensity techniques like many people will describe them. The biggest issue I have with them potentially is that they're hard to track. You know, you have to, okay, what did I drop? What? How much weight did I go go down? How long did I, did I rest on that rest pause? That three breaths, was that 30 seconds? Was it 10 seconds? Uh, and how do I compare that week to week to ensure this progressive overload? So generally, I'm a big advocate of people actually having workout logs and looking at what they did in prior weeks and trying to make steady progression over time when they can, not necessarily always week to week. And I think people who do a ton of supersets, drop sets, giant sets, strip sets, they're like, they're looking back and like the notation's weird or they didn't write it down because they were in the middle of a drop set and they struggle with that. But I think you certainly can use them if you can find a way to keep track of them well. Mm. And there is actually data on uh, rest pause as well as drop sets that suggest they can be equivalent to straight sets. You know, if, if they have a, a similar effort per set, so you're going similarly close to failure, and you can get a little more done in a more time-efficient way. I find that with supersets. Mm-hmm. So supersets meaning that you're doing one exercise and then uh, you do one set of that, and then while you're resting, you're not actually resting, you're working another muscle group yep. or, you know, another muscle doing a different exercise, and then you go back and forth between the two so that you're not – you're giving the muscles time to rest, but you're um, using your time as effectively as you can. Yeah, and we've got research to back up that that is a, a time-efficient, useful strategy that doesn't harm performance. You just have to think about what type of supersets make sense. Mm. So you wouldn't want to do like lateral raises with overhead press because like you said, those are the same muscle group, not a different muscle group. So you're not really resting at all, mm. right? And what you're causing is this acute fatigue that is not really helping you. Right. Rather, like if you were to do a bench press and then a row, bench press than a row, or leg extension, leg curl, leg extension, leg curl, or bicep curl, tricep extension. That's what's called an antagonist-agonist superset. Those are paired sets where you're using the muscles of one exercise that are then resting during the other and actually create some active recovery because, you know, when you're doing a bicep curl, the tricep is elongating and shortening but not under tension. And there's actually some data showing that you can actually enhance performance doing like bench row, bench press, bench row, bench press. There's some studies showing that. 
But there's also studies showing that if, if you do bench row, bench press, squat, bench press, bench row, squat, even though the squat isn't involved, because it's just so overall cardiometabolically demanding that you can see decrements in performance on things. So I think it's smart to probably do this on not lower body compound multi-joint lifts, but upper body compound lifts, sure, if they're the antagonist muscle group, or for isolation movements. It's a great time saver. I know what you're talking about, about the cardiovascular component to it, because I have done, recently actually, I tried to do some uh, supersets, doing some quite heavy uh, leg press, and then some Romanian deadlifts. So supersetting those two, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and I was puffing. Man, man. it was hard. I enjoyed it, though. I I did enjoy that, um, just uh, the very intense workout, but I did think that it was potentially a little bit too intense. In terms of then the rest then, what should you mm. be trying to achieve and how do you achieve it through rest in between sets? Great question. Yeah, I think generally there's multiple ways to get quote-unquote fatigue, if you will. And what we're actually after as lifters who are trying to grow muscle is peripheral fatigue, fatigue actually in the muscle fiber. So I can't do any more reps because I've accumulated local fatigue. You're not after cardiometabolic fatigue, Right. Uh, Not to say that you can't have dual goals. Like there's plenty of people who do CrossFit who are looking pretty good, right? You know, so it's okay. You just have to realize that as you diversify your portfolio of goals, you're also diluting the money that's in in, in each one of those portfolios, right? So if your goal is exclusively and primarily to get huge and get jacked, get yucky, all the good words, then you want to make sure that you're actually ensuring the fatigue is not coming from cardiometabolic fatigue. So I mean, you need to rest long enough to ensure that you're ready to do the next set. You can auto-regulate that rest period. But if local fatigue was a problem, things like drop sets or rest pause in the research wouldn't show that they can be effective. But we have data showing like, hey, if I do an initial set and then I rest five seconds, I do another five reps after I just did 12 and I do that three more times, that's equivalent to three by 10. We do have actually some research showing that. But it's all on like isolation exercises. Interestingly enough, when we look at short rest intervals on compound exercises, like if you compare group resting three minutes to one minute, and they're doing leg press, rows, presses, pulls, they typically don't grow as well as the group resting longer. And that's probably because they're creating all this kind of global fatigue. You know, they're just out of breath, right? So they can't work as hard. Uh, And they're getting uh, like central inhibition. Their nervous system's holding them back and saying, look, you're going to throw up. I'm not going to let you go heavy on this leg press set. Now, obviously, you can get better at that. If you're in great shape, there's plenty of athletes and CrossFit is an example who can do that. But um, just be aware that that's what you're signing up for if that's what you're doing that. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, you're making it an additional cardiovascular challenge, and you're going to have to get in really good cardiovascular shape to be able to do that like your experience was. So generally, the idea is that for isolation movements, which aren't that kind of taxing on your lungs, you can rest for short intervals, even if it drops off your number of reps. You don't want it to drop off the reps and the load so much. I would say probably at least to rest, you know, 60, 90 seconds on like a bicep curl or a calf raise. But when you're doing things like pressing, pulling, squatting, hinging, uh, my general recommendation is rest as long as you need to, to feel like you're ready to perform again. Right. Okay. And that, that could be what, sort of two minutes, three minutes? I'd say two minutes at a minimum. Right. But, okay. You know, it really depends on how strong you are. Mm. You know, this is one of those things where doing five reps with 80% of your one RM, you'd think it's the same for everybody, whether that was 100 kilos or 200 kilos. But when you think about the physics of it, like if I think about when I first started lifting, you know, if I have five rep max on squats would have been, you know, 60 kilos. Now I have done five reps with 180 kilos. 
like after, you know, 17 years of training and competing in powerlifting. And that's just far more energy expenditure. I'm still moving. I have the same skeletal structure. You know, I'm still moving as a six-foot dude, that barbell into the bottom position and back up. And even though I could only do five reps with 60 kilos back when I was 22, and now I can do it with 180 if I'm in powerlifting shape, the energy expenditure is just physics. You know, it's going to scale with the load you have, which is why when you look at like these incredibly strong athletes, you know, they do a set of eight and they're done, you know, Mm -hmm. and you can take a in decent shape novice lifter. They can do the hardest set of eight in their life, but in two minutes, they'll, they won't be huffing and puffing because it's, it's just not that heavy. So it's just not that much total output of energy because they're not moving that much load over much distance. Hello, jumping in again, um, just a little moment to talk about one of our sponsors, Mitchell's Nutrition, and specifically their bone broth protein powder. Because if you want to up your protein intake, you want to nourish your gut and support your skin, muscles and joints in one easy and delicious protein powder, I reckon this is probably the one for you. Mitchell's Nutrition was born out of a search for ways to support the body's natural healing abilities and optimize daily performance. Their mission is to elevate the standard of mental and physical well-being of Kiwis so that they can keep doing the things they love for as long as possible. Their bone broth protein powder is dairy-free, gluten-free, legume and grain-free, low in sugar and boasts a 100% natural occurring full amino acid profile. It's seriously a very high quality protein powder and I absolutely love it. Using a traditional slow cooking technique to extract the goodness from 100% grass-fed New Zealand beef bones before stirring in some natural flavor and monk fruit. That is all it is, there's nothing else, and I love that Mitchell's Nutrition has a very uh, very high commitment to their transparency. What you see is what you get. Now, being the first of its kind here in New Zealand, being a bone broth protein powder, you might be wondering what the taste is like, and I've got to say, it's the best tasting protein powder I've ever tasted. I have the vanilla one every day, and it tastes like a vanilla milkshake, without a word of a lie. So if you're interested to learn more, check the show notes. Now back to the podcast. What about variable resistance? So the reason I ask that is because I've, through the lockdowns and stuff, I started to use resistance bands quite a lot just at home, couldn't get to the gym, didn't have weights at home or had some light weights at home. So I started to do a lot of resistance band training and I I really enjoyed it. Um, Mm. And I thought that it it made a lot of sense being that, you know, the resistance varies in accordance with the strength of the muscles at certain positions throughout the movement um, to then try and recruit as many muscle fibers as you can kind of thing. So, yeah, do you use variables at resistance at all? And, and if so, how? Yeah, it depends on the context. So there's actually was some research done, like small sample research on people in COVID lockdowns doing band-based training, comparing it to other training and if they were able to, you know, effectively grow muscle. And the limited research we have on band training is that, yeah, it's a totally viable way for people to train. And you can, of course, get stronger and build muscle with bands. Some aspects of bands, though, if we think about that long muscle length relationship before, they're not ideal if I was to really kind of put a line in the sand. Because if you think about it, as you're doing a press, when your pec is longest, and let's say you've got a, a handle attached to a band here, there's the least amount of tension on the band. And then as you press, the band tension is increasing. Like you said, it's variable resistance. But as your muscle is getting shorter. So a lot of the times you have to make sure that you're in a position where there's sufficient tension even at the start of yeah. the band. And then it gets like really hard as you try to lock out. 
So bands are a very different experience than training with free weight in general. But that can be nice sometimes to if you want to mess with the, the resistance curve or if you want to have constant tension, especially if you don't have access to cables. Like I, I was mentioning earlier, hey, try this lateral raise variation where you're going across your body and there's tension at the very start. You can do that with a band, and you can argue it's probably better than a dumbbell, uh, even though it gets, gets harder as you get higher. But it's certainly probably a good intermediate step between the two if you mm -hmm. don't have access to a cable machine, which most people don't have a cable at home. So I think bands are a great at-home training uh, modality. I did a lot of them during COVID as well just because I didn't have access to – we didn't have a home gym yet. Yeah. So, yeah. I totally get what you're talking about, about the resistance – sometimes not being great enough when your muscle is potentially in that elongated position. Yeah. I thought about that and I was trying to mitigate that. Mm. So I, was, I would pause and sometimes hold an isometric position uh, for sort of like, I don't know, five seconds or so. Oh, yeah. So for a bench, it would be when my hands are down near my chest, I would pause there for, say, five seconds mm -hmm. to try and kind of fatigue the muscles. My idea was that there's not as much tension. So if I am holding the resistance there long and like longer then it will maybe fatigue the muscles more than if it was only just there for a short amount of time do you think that makes sense or? yeah i mean i think it's viable we just don't necessarily have that much understanding of how isometrics function mm. you know i actually really would love to see more exactly of what you were doing isometrics at long muscle lengths if muscle lengths really are that important do we even need to like do anything more than isometric training? Could we just do these isometric heavy holds and long muscle length positions? I don't think that'd be very fun, but it, <laughs> it would be interesting to kind of have us a better understanding of the muscle physiology. So like I said, I, I think bands are a really useful tool and it sounds like you've got some creative ways to get the most out of them. But if I had access to a whole a full gym, I don't use them very often. For strength, I think they can be useful if you're trying to overload the final portion of the range of motion. Right. You know, so for example, in, in powerlifting, if you find that you have no problem getting it, you know, off your chest about two-thirds of the way up and you really struggle to lock it out. In a bench press. Yeah, on a bench press. Uh, you could, you know, put chains on the bar so you get more links off the ground as the bar travels or you could add bands so the, the tension increases you get closer to lockout. I think for targeted individual uh, focuses on a given portion of a range of motion of a lift, that's something that you could use as an adjunct to your training. And some powerlifters you will find do do that, mm. especially those who are competing, and you may not be familiar with what this is, in equipped powerlifting, where they're wearing like a squat suit or a bench press shirt. Oh, no. Yeah, so there's two different divisions in powerlifting. There's raw, which is just like you and I go in the gym and lift. You're allowed knee sleeves, belt wrist wraps and that's it. And then there's equipped lifting where you're wearing like single ply or sometimes multiply depending on the division, elastic clothing. So it you can have much higher numbers. Like the, I think the like the heaviest bench press in the equipped world is like nearly what like the highest deadlift is. So they're they're crazy. Wow. So they give this big spring off the chest and they do a whole lot of lockout work. Because then there's no more help once you get to say two thirds of the way up and you just have to have a lot of tricep power. Right. Yeah. So if you talk to a lot of the old school, like West Side guys, like Louis Simmons, they focus a lot on like tricep development mm. because it's the bench helping them get it off their, their chest and then they have to figure out a way to lock out, you know, 800 kilos or whatever. <laughs> so <laughs> that's insane. Yeah. Okay. Let's move on to nutrition. What are some considerations for someone who's trying to build muscle? Like, mm. should they be focusing on getting enough calories? How much protein do they need? What's the deal? Nutrition is such a, it's a confusing topic for people because there's so many people who think they, have something to say about it. And there's people get very 
identified in camps and attached to certain approaches and certain food types. And there is a lot of public health rolled into it to a greater degree than you'll see with exercise. So you'll have some people are focusing on health. Some people are focusing on performance. Um, some people are focused on, you know, the environment and sustainability and things like that. So the, the crosstalk can get very confusing. But ultimately, it's actually quite simple when it comes down to physiologically, what do we need to grow muscle? And like I mentioned earlier, protein synthesis is how we build muscle. So it's probably not surprising that we need to eat a sufficient amount of protein to actually build muscle. And from the research we've done, and when I say we, I mean like the scientific community collectively. So that's been done over 40 years. <laughs> I didn't do it all. When we look at like meta-analyses on when do you stop getting a benefit out of a higher protein intake, it's somewhere around that like 1.6 to up to like 2, 2.2 grams per kg. So the old adage of a, a gram per pound, which, you know, American bodybuilders uh, came up with, it's not far off. That makes a lot of sense if you're in a quote-unquote normal range of body fat. So if someone's carrying a lot of body fat, they probably don't need a gram per pound because there's – what they're trying to grow is muscle tissue, but they're carrying a lot of adipose tissue or body fat around. What's a gram per pound in metric? 2.2 grams per kg. Cool. And I think that's generally like a high top end for people if they wanted to uh, you know, manipulate their protein. So right around 1.6 grams per kilogram per day or higher, that's probably where you're, you're maximizing the benefit there. In addition to that, um, we do know that muscle grows better when you have a sufficient energy intake. It's difficult if you're not eating enough to actually build muscle because more of your protein is going to get used for energy. Uh, and when you're in a low energy state, like dieting, for example. Or fasting? Yeah, or fasting. Yep. Um, there is actually data showing that having an eight-hour feeding versus a 12 normal, quote-unquote, 14-hour feeding window. Uh, that might have some health applications in some contexts, but it's probably not ideal for building muscle. There was actually a recent one-year-long study that showed that the individuals who were having an eight-hour feeding window for that whole year didn't quite grow as much muscle as the group that had a larger feeding window, even though uh, they were both trying to consume a similar amount of energy and protein. Right, okay. Yeah. So you don't always have to be quote-unquote optimal. You know, that's the bodybuilder perspective. Like I want to align every single chip in my favor to make sure that I am, you know, a good muscle farmer. Um, but a lot of other people are going, yeah, I'd like to build muscle, but I also want to maybe affect longevity. I want to just make sure my blood work looks good. I want to maintain a leaner physique while, while putting on some muscle. And I'm okay if that slows down the process a little bit. So it is, you know, Horses for courses, right? You know, whatever your goal is. But when you want to stack all the chips in your favor to build muscle, you're going to do so better in a, in a calorie surplus. You know, eating a little more than you need to maintain your weight. Taking that too far, however, just results in excess fat gain that doesn't speed up the process. And when we look at research on this, that's very much dependent upon the person's training age. So if you're a rank novice, you can build muscle pretty quickly. Uh, however, if you've been in the gym for or five years, if you try to gain muscle as quickly as you did when you were a novice, you're going to gain weight as quickly, but a lot of it won't be muscle. So, right. Yeah. What about sources of protein? Mm. There are so many different sources of protein. So Absolutely. what are your thoughts on different sources? Yeah, generally you want to have a varied diet that includes all the essential amino acids and is, you know, sufficient to cover your basis. And that occurs through most omnivorous diets without issue. You don't have to think about the sources that much so long as you're hitting that target. Most people with their habitual diet are not hitting 1.6 grams per kg or higher. They're probably around 1.3, 4, or 5. So they're close. It doesn't take much, uh, which is why generally when you look at studies on protein supplementation, like taking whey protein or soy protein, you see people making better gains than if they weren't doing it because it gets them not about the type of protein per se. It's about the fact that they've now gotten up to a protein intake which optimizes that process of building muscle. 
With that said, a lot of people simply don't eat certain types of protein for ethical, moral, religious, or sustainability reasons. You know, they might be vegan, they might be vegetarian, they might be flexitarian, maybe lacto-ovo-vegetarian, somewhere in between, pescatarian. And the good news is, is that there's a lot of different options now on the market that taste good. And it's a lot different than it was in, say, like the 2000s when I started, when everything just tasted like crap and you just kind of sucked it up and had protein powder anyway. But you can find uh, rice proteins, pea proteins, you can find nut-based protein, and you have a lot of options. And most of the vegan proteins these days, I think, are, are pretty good uh, in their isolate forms, which just means they've been isolated down to just the, the protein from whatever source they're from. Uh, they have a pretty good complement of amino acids, especially in the context of a mixed diet. You know, if let's say you're consuming rice protein and you're worried about, you know, it's a little low in these certain essential amino acids, but the rest of your diet has, let's say you're a vegan, it has, you know, beans, it has wheat, it has vegetables, it's got tofu. If you've got all these other potential sources of protein, that probably doesn't matter very much because those are being made up in other places. And it's more about hitting that total gram amount. So I would say what you don't want to do is to have a very narrow consumption of the type of protein. Well, as an omnivore, it matters less. But if you are a vegan or a vegetarian or someone who has a limited diet, uh, if you only have like two sources of protein in your diet, you might be having a shortfall somewhere. So it's probably a good idea to kind of switch it up or just have a more varied diet in general to make sure that you're getting your bases covered. In terms of covering your bases just with those protein sources, are you talking about the uh, amino acids? Exactly. Right. Okay. So, And that's because you need to have a full spectrum, a full profile of amino acids to build muscle. Exactly. So, you know, if we talk about like how do we get muscle protein synthesis to occur and be high for as long as possible, uh, there's essentially two components to that from a protein metabolism perspective. There's, there's leucine which is one of the branch chain amino acids, one of the essential amino acids, which is considered basically the ignition key to the process. Having a sufficient leucine intake turns on protein synthesis. And this is an analogy, if you will. The rest of the essential amino acids are like the gas in the car. So you can turn on the car, but you're not going to get very far without gas. So if you are lacking any of these nine essential amino acids from your diet, you're not going to be able to maintain high levels of protein synthesis and keep synthesizing protein in an efficient way. So the issue that has been proposed, but I will explain in a second, the research hasn't actually borne this out, is that vegans are going to be at a disadvantage because they're not getting all of the essential amino acids, which are much more present in uh, animal-based foods, whether that's eggs, dairy, or meat. All of those sources have all of the essential amino acids in abundance, but some vegetarian sources or vegan sources don't. They're missing something like, for example, methionine is not in uh, like pea protein, if I recall correctly. So you might have to mix pea with rice protein to get a profile that's similar to whey. But that's really only an issue if the rest of your diet it doesn't have those things, which most of the time it will. Mm. There was an old school kind of dietetics belief that on a meal-to-meal -meal basis, you, may, you had to make sure you had all your complements of amino acids. But that time scale doesn't really make sense from like a digestive standpoint. So I think it's really more important about your overall daily intake of food. Like if you had just a protein shake after your workout and it was missing some amino acids, that probably doesn't matter because you're still digesting breakfast or lunch or both. You know, mm. The digestion time course of, of meals is a lot longer than people think. You know, like if you were to have a, a steak, like a properly large steak, like from a restaurant, you'll be digesting that tomorrow still. 
you know, that's still going to be liberating those amino acids. It takes a, it's a long transit time through the gut. So anyway, yeah, to get back to it, we've actually got studies now where we've given people a vegan diet, compared them to omnivores, given them a resistance training, and made sure that the vegans are doing other things right in terms of their protein intake. They get at least 1.6 grams per kg. Uh, they are having post-workout protein. They're training in a fed state. And there's actually no significant difference in growth in terms of hypertrophy in those studies thus far. Despite the fact that when you compare some of these proteins head-to-head and like in just an analysis of their amino acids, one might be better. Like, oh, it's got a more complete amino acid profile. But that's just really like a subsection of a subsection of a subsection of the big picture. And when you have enough different varied sources and a sufficient amount of total protein and you're training hard, it just doesn't matter. It comes out in the wash because you have so you have an abundance of, of amino acids. Right. Would you ever consider or would you recommend someone considers supplementing amino acids? Individual amino acids, typically not. Yeah, it, it's not necessary and they're a lot more expensive. And, you know, that was something that was a, a big craze not too long ago, like branch chain amino acid supplementation or essential amino acid supplementation. Generally, you can get the same thing done if you want something easier to digest. Um, if you don't want to eat a full meal with just, say, getting like a whey isolate, a high quality protein in an isolated form. Take that with water. You know, like if, let's say you want to train, quote unquote, fasted. You're not fasted if you're taking amino acids or protein, but the protein is going to be cheaper mm. uh, in most cases. So I don't think it's necessary. And especially if the amino acids are isolated, they're typically not effective at turning on the protein machinery. Like you'll see higher protein synthesis spikes from, say, taking essential amino acids, like the whole complement of nine, or just taking whey protein compared to, say, branch chain amino acids, which is just valine, leucine, and isoleucine. Yeah. Like those three don't as effectively turn on the whole machinery of protein synthesis than, uh, say, the whole complement of essential amino acids. So, right. Yeah. Okay. Oh, that's good to know because, yeah, I have I've dabbled in taking essential amino acids before, thinking that yeah, that's great. It's going to help me. You know, these are the raw building blocks of yeah. um, of protein of muscle. But really, I'd be better off just having a extra scoop of whey protein. Yeah, the good news is your stomach works. Like it can right. take protein and break it down into those essential amino acids without issue. Yeah. Um, you know, the argument, and I understand where it came from. It actually did come from the research. It's not like a quote unquote bro science, mm. but the idea that faster is better. You know, like, okay, if, if whey protein concentrate is good, isolates better, and then screw it. Let's break those bonds and just get down to the amino acids. That's even better, right? And if I could inject that into my muscle, it would be 100 times better. <laughs> yeah. And that actually came from this notion from the research that the closer you time your protein post-workout, uh, the greater the enhancement of hypertrophy. And that is actually an extrapolation of the research that was unfounded. It was extrapolating based upon short-term studies where they would actually just measure muscle protein synthesis, right? And yes, muscle protein synthesis might be elevated immediately, but that's not the same thing as measuring, did your bicep get bigger eight, eight weeks from now? So it's this snapshot looking at this acute measurement that kind of captures everything, both muscle protein uh, synthesis as well as damage repair, which also registers as synthesis. And it doesn't tell you the whole picture. And you generally don't see strong relationships between acute short-term muscle protein synthesis and long-term hypertrophy. One is a, a really useful mechanistic hypothesis-generating metric but it's not actually measuring changes in body composition. So unfortunately, in the late 90s and early 2000s, 
some of the sports nutrition researchers got very excited about what happens when you take protein closer compared to further away from a workout. Yeah, that protein window that everyone was trying to hit, right? Yeah, and it was, you know, it's more like a barn door rather than it being like, I gotta, if, I, if I didn't get a protein shake right after I did my last set of bicep curls, it was a waste of time. Like we've come to realize that it was a, a gross over-exaggeration of the importance of timing. Yeah. Yeah. On supplementation then, what sort of supplements are useful? Creatine, is st it's still the king. It probably won't go away. For those who don't know, the creatine phosphate system is the initial system that we use to put forth maximal intensity and effort when training for like the first you know, 10 to 20 seconds of training. And it's actually stored in muscles. And um, we have a larger storage capacity than we have typically filled out in the average person. It's very difficult from your diet alone to increase your creatine content. Creatine is present in all animal products, primarily in meat. The cooking process degrades creatine from meats. So unless you're eating like just gobs of, of raw meat all the time, first off, more power to you, caveman. Uh, you're probably not getting enough creatine in your diet to max out those stores. So most people have to take supplemental creatine. Good news, just since we talked about vegans earlier, this is made in a lab, so it's not actually made from meat. You can get creatine monohydrate from the store quite cheaply, although we've had a shortage over the last few months, unfortunately. I think globally, if I recall correctly. But anyway, creatine monohydrate, it's cheap, and you can just simply take like three to five grams a day based upon your body weight. You'll get the supplemental saturated levels in your muscle. Your muscle creatine content will max out, and you'll typically see a small increase in strength performance, and it'll also enhance your ability to build muscle. We're not talking anything major, and you probably wouldn't even notice it if you're in a placebo-controlled study, but it will, you know, net you maybe an extra kilo of muscle mass in your whole lifting career, which I'll take, you know. Sure, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's, it's easy. It's just something cheap, affordable, and you can take it regularly. It's it's safe. Like I said, it's in this food supply. And um, in addition to that, like I mentioned earlier, if it helps you reach that target protein that I mentioned earlier of at least 1.6 grams per kg, supplemental protein can be helpful. In addition to that, you know, there's the tried and true caffeine, the good old cup of joe. That can acutely increase performance or reduce tiredness. Just have to be careful about taking it. Like if you train at 5 p.m., I wouldn't recommend training caffeinated or you're just going to mess up your sleep. But yeah, if you're training in the uh, before the afternoon, first thing in the morning, that's a great way to, to have a little pick-me-up. I mean, that's the main reason why the pre-workout market is – everyone's excited about it. It's because you feel it, and it mm. does acutely enhance performance. So creatine, caffeine, those are your kind of big two players. And everything else is – Still in de developmental stages, like there's some interesting things like beta alanine or citrulline malate. But most people, if they are interested in getting as big as possible and hypertrophy is their goal, I'd recommend protein if they can't get to their protein target from food alone, and then creatine. And with your creatine, how much and when should you be taking it? Yeah, I don't think you need to do the loading phase like most of the, the companies would recommend, which is typically like 20 grams a day, multiple times for like five days. That will get you to that muscle creatine content a little faster. It's also very inefficient. You know, you'll go through like 100 grams of creatine in your first week when normally you'll use 20 grams in a week. You know, if you take it, let's say five days and you forget on the weekend like most people do, that will get you like a week or two earlier to the point where you have saturated muscle creatine content. But let's put that in perspective. Like, I haven't stopped taking creatine since 2004. Like, I don't even remember the week where I loaded, <laughs> yeah. you know? It's a drop in the bucket. And most of the side effects that people experience occur during the loading phase because you're taking so much in, it causes GI distress. Right. So for most people, I would just recommend if you're, let's say, under 150 pounds or under 70 kilos, like three grams a day. And if you're over that, four or five grams a day. Mm. If you're a real, real big guy, then five grams a day is, is sufficient. Uh, most people, if you're training 
you know, four days a week or more. You can just take five grams on workout days. It's easy to not forget doing it post-workout and you'll get to the supplemental levels. It'll just take an extra week or two. Does it matter at all when you take it or how you take it? All of the stuff around how and when that was studied and promoted did come from research and it was showing, oh, you get better creatine absorption or or better uptake in, in the muscle, but it's during the loading phase. So I think you need to think of it like a gas tank or sorry, your petrol tank. Like once that's full, you're just topping it off right? So sure, if you take it with sugar, it will get into your muscle a little faster because of the action of insulin. Sure, if you take it post-workout when your muscles are ready to suck up creatine, it'll get in there a little faster. But once you're at the point where you're at at 95% full and you're just trying to get back to that 5% on a day-to-day basis, it really doesn't matter when you take it. Mm. So uh, the maintenance dose, it's far less complicated than how to optimize that loading phase, which occurred sometime for me, you know, 18 years ago. Yeah. So just any time during the day, just trying to remember to take it. Yeah. You know, like most habits, I like to attach it to another behavior. Mm. So I take it after I work out with my way because I won't forget. Yeah. You know, I I train five days a week, so that's easy for me to get in my my 25 grams a week. So Yeah. No, that's what I do too. I put it in my my protein smoothie. Okay. I want to move on to recovery. Yeah, let's do it. So how do you optimize recovery? How do you know that you're recovered. Mm. I'm interested in DOMS. Like, is, mm. is DOMS a, a good indicator? DOMS meaning delayed onset muscle soreness. That's the feeling you get when your muscles are, you've worked your muscles in there a bit tight and sore, you know, the next day or two days after. Is that a good indicator of the fatigue in your muscles? And like, and should you then like, you know, have to wait until that subsides? Or mm. is it not really a good indicator? It is an indicator of something, but the amount that it can tell you is, is unfortunately probably not as much as we'd like it to tell us. Like I mentioned, you know, you get sore from RDLs for two reasons, because you haven't done them in a while, and then because they're in that lengthened position, they're causing a lot of muscle damage. What we have, though, is what's called the RBE, or the repeated bout effect, which is just this phenomenon in exercise science where if you repeat a movement, even if you're training hard and training to failure, lifting heavy, the amount of da- muscle damage you get from it, the amount of experienced DOMS that you get, declines pretty steeply after the first time doing it. And also the more frequent the exposure to it, the more that repeated bout effect rears its head. So let's say, for example, I go back to when I was training on an upper-lower split and I shifted the way I train now, which is, I wouldn't say it's full body, but I'm training the same muscle group three, four, five times in a week, just with less volume per, per session. I rarely get sore now. And that's not necessarily indicating that my training is any less effective. It's just indicating that I have a robust ability to exert the repeated bout effect, which is just protecting the muscle from damage. And I think it's really important to make the distinction between uh, muscle damage and muscle growth. They are separate processes. You know, you don't have to create muscle damage to create muscle growth. They occur in hand in hand. It's hard not to make a muscle do work. You know, we're organic systems where there's not some wear and tear, if you will, quote unquote, uh, when, when you train. Anytime you overload a muscle, there's going to be some microscopic damage that gets repaired. But it's not necessarily the damage that's causing the hypertrophy. The training and the stimulus is causing hypertrophy and damage occurs in the process. Right. So what DOMS does tell you is that you train that muscle group and that it was sufficient enough to cause damage, which often, not always, is sufficient enough to cause overload. But like, let's say you you haven't done RDLs in five years and you do it with just 60 kilos, even though right now you can deadlift 180 and you do five reps, you might be sore tomorrow, but I doubt that was enough to actually stimulate growth in your hamstrings. So there are there are caveats to that statement. There are times when you can experience DOMS that are are not indicative of a sufficient stimulus. However, if all else is equal, let's say you're, you've been doing the same training split for three months 
right? And all you're doing is manipulating volume. You're doing more sets or you're getting closer to failure. And you're a little sore this week. Even though all the exercises were the same, your split's the same, and all you've been doing is manipulating intensity and volume, that's probably an indication that you're a little less recovered, that you've created a little more overload in your muscles, right? Because we've controlled everything else. So that's certainly in that context, DOMS can be useful, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you can't then train again because we're still trying to understand exactly what DOMS represents. Because if you would think about it, if DOMS was directly proportionate to damage, then DOMS would not be DOMS. It would be OMS, right? Like, why is it delayed, Mm. right? Because when I just first trained, that's when I'm causing the the supposed damage. Yeah. So I should have muscle soreness immediately from creating these micro tears, right? Mm. But actually, it's delayed. So what's going on there? And the relationship between DOMS and, like, force production, sometimes it's actually inverse, meaning that as DOMS is coming up, force production is coming up as well, our ability to recover. So one of the ways we can measure recovery, which is probably the most direct and accurate way of measuring recovery, is performance. So if you ran a mile right now, and then I said, sweet, go run another mile, you wouldn't run it as quickly, Mm. right? And just like if I told you to do a five rep max on squats, and then I said, okay, sweet, let's do that same weight, you might not get that fifth rep. So that's because there's this initial suppression of performance from fatigue. And that will have a time course before you're back up to baseline, right? So let's say we do a five rep max today and it takes you until two days from now when you can actually do that five rep max with the same load again. And that's how long the recovery takes. That's the point when your DOMS is starting to come up. So DOMS might actually be indicating the inflammation that's occurring and the repair process of the damage rather than the damage itself. So that disassociated time course draws into question how much we should allow DOMS to influence our decision to train or not. Mm. With that said, during the repair process, it means we're not fully repaired. And there are studies where you've, like, of course, you know, scientists, we love to do terrible things to people, mad scientists doing crazy studies. If you look at some of the stuff in the early 2000s where they did, like, a thousand eccentric contractions and then saw how long it took, like, they made people have DOMS for, like, weeks, you know, if you look in the research. And, yeah, force production was suppressed for that whole time. So if you do a crazy amount of muscle damage to yourself and create just this huge fatigue sink, then yeah, you probably don't want to train. But if we're talking about a 10 or 20% elevation over your your normal experience DOMS, that doesn't necessarily indicate that you shouldn't train yet. But it does tell you something a bit about how that stimulus affected your body. Mm. So I think DOMS is a part of an overall picture. And I normally do include it in some of my like questionnaires that I have for my athletes, like in like a post-block review. I might ask them, is your sleep worse than normal? Is your stress worse than normal? Are your aches and pains, which is part of the DOMS, uh, is that worse than normal? And just get these yes or no answers. And if they're saying yes to multiple of these questions, then I go, okay, maybe we should take a light week or a deload or we should investigate under the hood. Is your nutrition in place? Is your sleep worse, et cetera, or something like that? Mm. Are there any ways that you can manipulate that recovery to try and speed it up? You can try. And um, sometimes these are successful. Sometimes they're successful, but at a long-term cost. The basic bread and butter of recovery is ensuring that you are getting adequate sleep. That's one of the big ones. That you are setting up your training split in such a way that allows recovery. So for example, if you're doing chest and back, and then the next day you're doing shoulders, that's not ideal. You just did a whole lot of pressing for chest probably. Uh, Maybe you should have a leg day interspersed between them or something like that. So thinking about, all right, where am I doing a lot of long muscle length training for that muscle group close to failure with a lot of volume? And am I in a recovered state going into that workout? And do I have some time afterwards? 
So for example, if you're training Monday through Friday, as many people do, because the weekend is just, you know, that's not when they want to train. You want to think about putting your hardest work when you're most recovered on Monday, right? And then Tuesday should probably be one of your easier sessions before you go in on a Wednesday. So you kind of have this alternating easy, hard, and you're thinking about where do I have days off, right? Mm. So manipulating volume distribution and uh, effort distribution in your training, that's one of the most important things you can do, not just haphazardly throw a program together. The second thing you can do is ensuring that your nutrition is in place. If you don't have adequate calories and if you don't have adequate protein uh, and if you don't have adequate carbohydrate to fuel training, but more so overall calorie intake, those things can also negatively affect your ability to recover. So nutrition and training, which we've already talked about, and I just added a bit of nuance to the specific components of it that are going to impact recovery, and then sleep are by far going to be the most important things. That said, you know, you get on Instagram and you see, you know, LeBron James doing like cupping or, you know, you see some rugby player who's getting a massage. It's not that none of these things work. It's that the magnitude of effect they have compared to proper training, nutrition, and sleep is far smaller and that a lot of them don't work. Some do, but a lot of them don't. And some work, but at a cost. So, for example, a very popular kind of biohacky one is like the uh, ice baths or contrast showers or, or cryo chambers, those types of things. Those do seem to acutely enhance performance recovery a little faster, but if they're used chronically or consistently, they actually blunt the processes which induce hypertrophy. Mm, Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because I I have an ice bath. So I I enjoy taking ice baths. I have a sauna as well. I really like sauna. Mm. And I wanted to ask you about the effect that they might have on hypertrophy because I've heard mixed things that the cold can blunt and the effects of hypertrophy or protein synthesis within four hours after training. Yeah, But then I've heard a recent meta-analysis that said that that was potentially not the case. So I'm like, well, who do I believe? I don't know what's going on. Sure. Yeah, I, I think it probably depends on how cold is it, when are you doing it, and how frequently. And I think you know, in the studies where they've showed this blunting effect, it's like, okay, an eight-week study of training, and every day after you train, you do an ice bath. Mm. I don't recommend that. You know, we've, we've also shown that effect of taking like NSAIDs, like ibuprofen, after every workout. You know, so... Inflammation is something that does negatively impact performance acutely, but it's also part of the recovery and repair process. So you can impact that via you know, temperature, and you can also impact that via drug mechanisms. And in both cases, yeah, you can acutely increase recovery and potentially performance, but at the cost of long-term adaptation. Mm. So if you think about it, if you're a basketball player and you've got a game tomorrow and you just did a, you know, a training or a practice – Do you care that you're blunting one day of hypertrophy from your practice? Not at all. But if you're a bodybuilder, you probably don't want to do that every session. A powerlifter might do it, you know, during their peak week because, again, it's not like you're going to lose muscle right before your meet. You're just trying to improve acute strength performance. Mm. So it's, it's really about chronic versus acute use. And sauna is interesting. That that That's almost probably better looked at as a stimulus rather than a recovery strategy. Yeah, yeah. I saw that um, there have been some studies on it, and there was one that was to do with increasing your growth hormone, I think. Mm. But the protocol for that was a pretty intense sauna session. Yeah, Yeah, can you elaborate on that? Yeah, I haven't looked a ton at the sauna stuff, but one interesting thing that I'm aware of is that there's not a lot of consistency in the research. Some of the stuff coming out of, I think, some of the Nordic countries tends to be a little more positive than other countries. So that could be cultural bias creeping into the research. That could be they, they know how to do it better. Uh, that could be genetic differences and people responding better to it because it's been part of their culture for a long time. It could be a lot of things, but ultimately as a applied practitioner and a researcher, I go 
Right. I want to see this replicated in a lot of different contexts to be able to make a firm statement about it. And right now, I am not super confident that sauna is going to be as magical as sometimes it's represented in some kind of the pop science stuff. However, it does seem to essentially create uh, like a cardiovascular stimulus. It probably shouldn't replace you going out for a run or getting on a cycle, but it can create similar effects, you know, heat-based kind of quote-unquote training to cardiovascular stimulus. I don't think the effects of driving up endogenous growth hormone production are going to do much as far as like adaptation or resistance training or anything like that. And there are studies showing that like that acute heat stress can actually acutely degrade performance. So I don't think we should view sauna as like a recovery tool, but it, you could see it as an additional stimulus. But the nuances of that, we're still uncovering. Mm. Uh, so, you know, you're going to see people play with it and try it out and do different things and, you know, more power to those innovators if they want to do it. But ultimately, we just don't have good protocols yet that have come out of the science, in my opinion. Yeah, I, th I think that the science there is still pretty new. Yeah. Okay, I think that might be all we've got time for today. This has been such a great chat. I've just... Uh, I've enjoyed it. Some questions that I had that um, you've just answered so completely has been fantastic. So how can people follow you or um, get in touch with you if they want to work with you in some way? How do they follow you? Absolutely. Yeah. If someone is interested in, in anything getting jacked or getting strong, you know, definitely check us out at 3dmusclejourney.com. Uh, that is number three, the letter D, and then musclejourney.com. From there, you can find links to my books, our monthly research review, where we cover a lot of the science that we talked about and put it into applicable terms. Uh, it's called MASS, Monthly Applications in Strength Sport. And also, we have a coaching tab if you want to work with any of, the, any of the coaches on the team who are supported by myself. And then if you're interested in just kind of following more of the content I do, I do a lot of podcasts like this, and thank you for having me on. You can follow me at Helms3DMJ on Instagram. Awesome, man. Oh, well, thank you so much for your time. It's a pleasure. Oh, one last question before you go. What did you think of the podcast? Did you like it? Because if you did, then please rate it and review it and share it and tell people about it. Tell your mum, tell your dad, tell some random guy down the road. It really does make a big difference and it helps us to keep creating this podcast and sharing this awesome information with you for free. This show is brought to you by Raw Collective, the podcast company behind the creation of this show. You will find all updates on the Raw Collective Instagram as well as on the website rawcollective.co. Now get out of here. Go have a good day. Get out of here. Bye.